We're still in this series called Rediscovering Adventure uh, from the book of Exodus. And I've entitled this message, God's Effective and Efficiency. Sometimes it looks as though, well, like the only appropriate question to ask God on some days in our lives and some seasons is, I know you want to bless me, but you're sure taking your sweet time. What in the world are you doing? It looks as though sometimes in our lives, from our experience, that God isn't really committed to getting us from here to there as quickly as possible, but that he's actually being inefficient. And maybe even sometimes it feels as though he's being kind of incompetent. I didn't have this planned, God. What in the world is up with this that you're allowing here? Exodus 14 contains one of the most well-known and amazing stories of Scripture. It's hard to argue, really, with the conclusion that what we read in Exodus chapter 14 might even be the mother of all stories when you're talking about stories about adventure. The poster child of the adventure story is in Exodus chapter 14. Even people who have never been to a church, never opened a Bible, or even ever heard any kind of a sermon, there's still a high likelihood that they know something of the story that we read, this adventure story in Exodus chapter 14. It's the record of the parting of the Red Sea during Israel's grand adventure from slavery in Egypt to freedom in the promised land. What I want to do is actually take the time it takes to read the lion's share of this account, this great adventure in Exodus 14. It's not going to come up on the screen, so just listen. And when you're listening, try to get into the space, into the head of what it would feel like to experience these things as one of the Israelites fleeing slavery in Egypt. I mean, where you have never known an ancestor, a relative, and for the most part, even a friend who wasn't enslaved, generation after generation after generation, nine or ten generations, a lineage of dependence, of slavery, of oppression. And then all of a sudden like that, you've got freedom. Listen to this. When the king of Egypt was told, now so the Israelites leave Egypt after all those generations of bondage. And when the king of Egypt was told that the people had fled, Pharaoh and his officials changed their minds about them and said, my goodness, what have we done? We've let the Israelites go, and we lost all of that free labor, all of their services. So he had his chariot made ready and took his army with him. And he took, check this out, 600 of the best chariots, along with all the other chariots of Egypt, with officers over all of them. Get some idea of the strength and the size, the magnitude of this pursuit. And as Pharaoh approached, the Israelites looked up. And there were the Egyptians marching after them. Excuse me for a second. And they were terrified and they cried out to the Lord and they said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, leave us alone, let us serve the Egyptians? It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. 
And Moses answered the people, do not be afraid. Stand firm and you will see the deliverance of the Lord. He's going to bring that deliverance to you today. And the Egyptians you see today, uh, you will never see again, he said to them. The Lord will fight for you. You need only be still. And then in verse 15, obviously we jumped something, because in verse 15 it says, The Lord said to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? I'm guessing what must have happened was something like this, that Moses went to the people and said, Relax, be still, you're going to see the Lord fight for you today. And with his next breath must have turned to God and said, What are you doing? What is this? Like you're inefficient, you're incompetent. What are you allowing? This was not part of the plan. Then the Lord says to Moses, Why are you crying out to me? Tell the Israelites to move on. Raise your staff, stretch out your hand over the sea to divide the waters so that the Israelites can go through the sea on dry ground. Then Moses stretched out his hand, in verse 21, over the sea. And all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind, and turned it into dry land. And the waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And this wasn't like a 20 or 30 foot passageway. It was enough for all of those Egyptians on their chariots in formation to get through as they pursued Israel. I mean, some scholars say the, the, uh, the uh, Waterway might have been as much as a mile wide, the the dry land, the opening. And so Israel passed through, and the Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. And during the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and uh, and cloud. There's a reference earlier that I'll read in a second, where there was a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud. One showed up by day and one by night, And the Israelites just had to follow. Wherever that pillar went, that was God directing them. So that's the reference here that is introduced earlier. The Lord looked down from the pillar of fire in the cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. And he jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get out of here. Let's get away from these Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. And then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea so that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and their horsemen. And Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak the sea went back to its place. And the Egyptians were fleeing toward it and the Lord swept them into the sea. And the water flowed back and covered the chariots and the horsemen. And the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea, not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And that day the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the great power the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. If that's a little bit of a difficult passage for you to hear, and you find yourself maybe feeling a little conflicted uh, when invited to celebrate that, I'm glad. That means things are healthy in you. It's never good news to hear that anybody, even our greatest enemy, people who mean us uh, the greatest harm, it's never good news, never something easy to celebrate when they lose their life. But the fact is, 
This was God rescuing Israel. So even though conflicted, we still can celebrate the fact that he rescued and still rescues his people. Now, most people have heard some version of this story. Can we agree with that? What is less known is some of what happened just before that portion of the story. And it's from those more obscure texts that we're going to take a couple of lessons this morning as we talk about rediscovering adventure in this sermon entitled, God's Effective Inefficiency. The lessons learned come from God's apparent commitment to inefficiency. From him going out of his way to take the longest, slowest route in this epic historic adventure. We're going to dig into those lessons now because in those more obscure texts, you realize that's exactly what he did. He said, let's go there. And he said, we're going to start going there by going there. Complete inefficiency. And here's some of the lessons. We're going to put the text up first. The first one comes from Exodus 13. And right toward the end of Exodus 13, so just a few sentences before what I just read to you, you have this in Exodus chapter 13, beginning at verse 17. When Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, though that was shorter. So in other words, God took the less efficient route. For God said if they face war, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. So God led the people around by the desert road toward the Red Sea. And the Israelites went up out of Egypt ready for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him because Joseph had made the Israelites swear an oath. He said, God will surely come to your aid someday and then you must carry my bones up with you from this place. That happened generations earlier. And after leaving Sukkoth, they camped at Etham on the edge of the desert. And by day the Lord went ahead of them in a pillar of cloud to guide them on their way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light so that they could travel by day or by night. Neither the pillar of cloud by day nor the pillar of fire by night left its place in front of the people. And here's the part I want to focus on. It's the first part of that text as we're learning lessons from these lesser-known texts, these lesser-known experiences. It's the part that says, when Pharaoh let the people go, God did not take them on the road through the Philistine country, though it was shorter. And here's the first takeaway we have in our lessons about adventure. Your current frustration with God, when you're asking, what in the world are you doing? This is not what I had planned. May actually be God's current blessing to you. It looks like he's inefficient, But that may actually be him going out of his way to bless you. I've got a map. I want to show you what I'm talking about here. You'll see this with the map. I have one of these little things I never want any of you to bring in here. Look at the route. Now, here's here's where they were enslaved. Here's the promised land where God said he's going to take them. You don't have to be a member of Mensa to know that the fastest way to get from here to here is to take the trade route this way. But look at the route they take. They go almost, I mean, they go in the wrong direction. They come this way and, and south. 
God seems inefficient, and it's God who's leading them. The text goes out of its way to say it's the pillar of fire and the pillar of cloud that are dictating where they go. They didn't take that that seemingly flawed and inefficient route because they made bad decisions or their compass was off. That's the way God led them. But what does the text say? It says that he did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country. Uh, There's that Philistine country right up there. He didn't want to take them the most direct route. Though that was shorter, for God said, it might not be best for them. If they face war which they likely would have to do. And it says they went out ready for battle, but none of them had been trained as soldiers, really. If they face war too soon, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. God took Israel the longest, most difficult, indirect, frustrating way possible to the promise in order to care for them and bless them. And it's important to take that lesson away on our adventures. Our current frustration with God and what causes it may actually be God currently blessing us, caring for us, watching out for us. So he doesn't go the easiest, fastest way. Sometimes he goes exactly in the wrong direction. That's an inefficient route. It's like like driving from San Francisco to Seattle by way of Dallas. That's how God took these guys to the promised land. But unlike us, God is never interested in taking the fastest route to the wrong destination. We're almost addicted to efficiency. We decide the most efficient way is obviously God's will. The easiest way is obviously God's will. The fastest way is obviously God's will. Why would He make it more difficult than it has to be? Uh, not always true. In fact, rarely true. He's not interested in taking the fastest, most efficient route to the wrong destination. What can appear to be divine neglect is often just the opposite. It's a good takeaway for us. What can feel like divine indifference is actually the ultimate sometimes expression of care and attention and presence. God's more concerned with our adventures being helpful than He is with them being easy. His goal for every adventure we're on is formation, not efficiency. How is this experience you're having forming you, helping you to become more like Jesus and less like the broken part of you? good lesson to take away. Your current frustration with God might just be God's current blessing for you. God did not lead them on the road through the Philistine country, even though that was shorter. That's the first takeaway. Second takeaway comes from Exodus 14, the first few verses there. I didn't read those first few verses before. But listen to them. So this comes right on the heels of the text I just read. Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the Israelites to turn back and encamp near Pi-Hahirath, between Migdol and the sea. They are to encamp by the sea, directly opposite Baal-Zephon. Pharaoh will think the Israelites are wandering around the land in confusion, hemmed in 
by the desert. So let's look back at the map again, and, and I'll show you what happens here. Get that map back up there. We're not exactly sure of where these towns that were just referenced are, but we're sure they're in this little region right down here. This is likely what happened. So the first challenge, uh, the first journey goes in the wrong direction. They want to go up here, they go down here. Then the next step is, God says, now go back. And they actually seem to backtrack. They go back toward Egypt. Now, if, if you're planning an escape route from, from oppression, you don't tend to want to go back past the front door of your oppressor, right? Let's put my back to that oppression and let's get out of Dodge. Let's get out of here. Let's skate as fast as we can in the opposite direction. But here you have God saying, no, go back. So we already went in the wrong direction. Now go back. And then if that's not enough, go and camp down here by this body of water. And he says, because then Pharaoh will think, I've got them now. They're trapped by the water on one side, the desert on the other. The army's coming. You know why Pharaoh was going to think that? Because that's exactly what had happened. I got them. It's like they're stuck. You, you think, well, we went here. Let's sneak on over here. Or let, no, we go backward and then even into greater danger. We can't really move. Here's the second takeaway from this challenge. Go back. Go backward for a little while. Your regressive detour, sometimes it feels like we're taking those. Man, this is backward. I'm not going forward. Your regressive detour might be God's forward progress. Because that regressive detour it looked like Israel was taking actually fit right in with something great that God wanted to do for them. Something great in history that He wanted to accomplish and great in their history that He wanted to accomplish. Your regressive detour, even though it's discouraging and it smells and tastes and feels and looks like divine inefficiency, divine incompetency, might actually be God's forward progress. Never forget that. That's the Romans 8.28 in us. That God causes all things to work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Even when He, as maybe especially when He's the reason, it feels like we're going backward. They were told to take an unexpected turn back. And then they were led to a place where they couldn't even move forward, where they were hemmed in by the Red Sea. This unexpected detour seemed to make no sense at all. They must have certainly been there asking the question, what in the world is God doing? This is not what I had planned to experience. Good morning. Um, it was a uh, very sunny day, spring morning in uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And my uh, darling wife had gone to a meeting or something. 
I had four kids, four daughters, ranging in age from five years old to 10 years old. We were very busy. Uh, and uh, a dog, a Shetland sheepdog, that wanted to uh, herd the girls every time they ran out. So uh, I took the girls and said, let's go outside. It's a beautiful day, partly to get them away from the uh, boob tube. And we uh, opened the door, and they scattered in every direction, and the dog yapping after them, trying to get them back into shape. And I noticed over on the uh, right, and our next door neighbor was uh, kneeling down on one knee, like a T-bow. Uh, you might, if you follow football, Tim T-bow. Uh, he was uh, looking at the ground or at a plant, and uh, the kids were all running every which way. This was a new development, and they'd moved in maybe uh, two weeks before. I'd met him briefly, and um, I didn't even remember his name. So, um, as I said, the girls were all running every which way. The uh, neighbor, neighbors were out walking, uh, working in their yards, and this guy kind of motioned to me. I walked over near him, and I had been a Christian for two weeks. I was in the process of learning what it is like to be a Christian, uh, my background was Greek Orthodox and uh, re recently Presbyterian. This guy looked at me and he said, uh, he looked haggard and uh, hollow-eyed. He looked at me and he said, John, I'd like to pray with you. And I thought to myself, this is weird. And the hair on the back of my head literally stood up. I... Uh, had a quick jolt of adrenaline, and time slowed down for me, as it does when you are in some sort of a panic mode. All of a sudden, I was thinking, how can I get out of this? I don't want to pray with this guy. I don't know how to pray with this guy. I, I can't do this. I've got to find a way out. And my first thought went to the kids. I said, I'll use the kids as a, as a reason not to pray with this guy. And as I was thinking that, the neighbor uh, from the next street, who actually uh, welcome wagoned us in, his name was Jack Hartman, he came over the hillside about 100 yards away, and he said, hey, John. How about sending the girls up here? And I said, oh, um, okay. Uh, he said, yeah, we just got the pool, the kiddie pool set up, and we'd like to have the kids come and join our kids. And I thought to myself, what am I going to do now? The kids are gone. They were already running. They didn't ask me. 
And, and uh, I said, oh, the dog, that's it. I'll use the dog. And as I went to say to this guy, but what about my dog? I have, he, Jack said, well, don't forget to send Raindrop up there, too. Up here, too. I said, what am I going to do? I don't want to pray in front of him. I don't know what to say. And he then said, the real shocker, I'd like to pray here. Here? You mean in front of everybody? All our neighbors? What are they going to think of me? They're going to think I'm a fanatic. Oh, crazy. And he said, yeah, here. And I said, Can't, no, let's, let's go inside. We can go into your house and pray. And I'm thinking to myself, and pull the blinds so nobody can see us. Oh, we can go over to my place. Oh, we can go behind your house. And he said, no, I'd like to pray right here. And I said, what are you doing, Lord? What's going on? And I said, okay, let's pray. And so I kneeled down with him, and I heard his story. He was a young dad, just like I was, three kids, just lost his job at PPG, didn't know how he was going to make the house payments for which he had just bought a new house, and was totally depressed. He started bawling, I started bawling, right out there in the middle of the street, in front of the neighbors. And I thought to myself, what are you doing, Lord? This can't be right. You're making me a laughing stock in front of everybody. Well, as it turned out, <clears throat> most of the neighbors didn't actually see us, but some did. And we had questions, and some of those neighbors, several of them, came to the Lord. And my wife at a um, children, child evangelism group. And several of those girls came to the Lord as a result. And here we are in our old age, uh, well, older, more mature. And even now we hear stories from some of those kids that took those classes with my wife, Anna, saying how they had come to the Lord and what a great experience that was in the uh, child evangelism classes. So I guess um, in the journey, which to me did not take 40 years, but 40 seconds, basically, in that short time, God knocked a bunch of chips off the... Uh, block he was trying to create and made it possible for me to be able to, for example, stand up in, the, in front of you and talk about spiritual things and to witness to my friends because he'd taken that pride and, and, and wiped it out. 
Thanks, John. Yeah, so that wasn't on the agenda for that day. What was on the agenda for that day was, okay, I'm going to watch the kids. We might go outside and play. I've got to make sure the dog is all taken care of. I'm going to give my wife some time away. And then this interruption comes that looked like a step backward. That's nowhere on my list. And plus, I'm not comfortable with it. Plus, it seems weird. It's not what I was planning. That's like a step backward from what was supposed to get done today, what I had planned. But sometimes your regressive detour is actually God's forward progress. And you continue to have a huge effect in that neighbor. I, I know some of the rest of the story. Life stayed tough uh, for him. And not everything ended well for him. But on that day, God was doing something great in his life. It looked like a step backward to John. Actually, it was a huge step forward for John's neighbor. Because sometimes it almost looks, isn't that true? Haven't you noticed that? It almost looks as though God is tenaciously committed to the longest, slowest, toughest route in life's adventure. Even, even sometimes to going backward. Weren't we just there, Lord? This feels like a step backward. Sometimes those regressive detours, those things that feel like you're going backward, actually are God's forward progress. That's a takeaway from this lesson. Because when he was the one leading, he said, turn back for a little while. I'm fixing to do something great. God's never interested in taking the fastest route to the wrong destination, ever. And what can appear to be divine neglect is often just the opposite. Your backward detour might be God's forward progress. Now, to travel in those days from Egypt up to Canaan, Anybody know about how long that journey would be? It's about 11 days. Should have taken between one and two weeks to get from where the Israelites were in Egypt up to where God had told them he was going to take them. But that 11-day trip took decades. God took decades, a a whole generation to complete uh, that journey and to give them that promise. Now, granted, most of the wandering, most of the reason it took so long had to do with Poor choices that Israel made and, and lack of faith in some of the, uh, the things that they encountered. But not every reason for delay was their fault. Some of them were divinely designed. They were, God did them on purpose. And they felt like unnecessary delays, but they were actually God doing good things. And here's the point I want to make, and I want to send you away with this today. If that was the case then then it could be the case today. If it was true that Israel's current frustration with God was actually God blessing them, then it could be true that whatever's causing our current frustrations with God could actually be God caring for us. What feels like neglect could be mercy. What feels like we're left behind and He's forgotten us could be exactly the opposite. Hold on to that today. 
If it was true then that what felt to them like a regressive, even dangerous, backward detour was actually God's forward progress, Him leading them to something great, something that even those who had no interest in God would know about, like the parting of the sea, protection from their enemies. It can also be true of us today. You may feel like you've just taken this big step backward, like you've outweighed your opportunity and it's gone from you. And you're so far behind where you should be in the adventure you thought you were going to be taken on that it's over with. Well, guess what? That's not necessarily true. Your regressive detour might actually be God's forward progress. That's a takeaway for us. I mean... What feels like this unhelpful interruption to the plans that you thought were well thought out and well laid out feels like an interruption and not something good. It might actually be God leading you out to a neighbor who's burdened down with life, who's saying, will you come over here and pray with me? I mean, that is a strange thing. And it looks like an interruption to the plan, but it actually may be the launching of one of the greatest adventures you'll ever go on in your life. And an invitation to somebody else to begin the greatest adventure he or she will ever go on in their life. Good thing to remember. I'm going to ask the band if they'll come on back up. And uh, we've been singing this song that's become our Advent song and ending our gatherings with that reminder that this is a season of waiting, uh, a season of anticipation. We're going to do that again now as the band leads us in that Advent song.